when we started out, everything for us is building Google Cloud. We got a ton of Google Cloud credits because you can get that as a startup. Well, you, you have a lot of credits, then you don't really care about the cost. I mean, no matter how lazy we were about scalability, we couldn't use all that money because it was just a lot of money. So no matter how badly all the SQL was written, it didn't really matter. Then we ran out of credits and all of a sudden it did matter. And then you need to fix scalability to a point where it goes from like, okay, I don't have to explain to my investors that we are actually spending 50% of our revenue on cloud bill. I'm Lars, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Dream Data. This is Code Story, the podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry and build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host, Noah Labhart, and today how Lars Gronegaard created the best way to join all revenue data and present transparent, actionable insights. All this and more on Code Story. Outside of technology, Lars Gronegaard is an avid cyclist. He's into road or mountain biking along with alpine skiing, but he does the latter outside of Denmark in Norway or South Austria. He's a family man with three kids and he takes his kids cycling with him. Alongside of this, he likes to cook for his family, and he claims he has a full life between his startup, family, children, and hobbies, and he needs no more. Prior to his current venture, Lars was primarily a product guy, and in running product, he cared deeply about the impact that strategic business moves made on the business, in particular on the revenue. After not finding a solution to attribute revenue, he decided to create a platform to find out the truth around this information. This is the creation story of Dream Data. Dream Data is a B2B revenue attribution platform. Just doing some explanation around how we got to build this product will also explain what it is. I, I'm a CEO now, but I used to be uh, a product person. So I'm still a product person, but I used to run product at a Copenhagen scale-up called Trustpilot. In that capacity, we had a very mixed go-to-market. So you say we were doing a lot of product-led, we were doing a lot of marketing-led, and there was also sales-led. So we had many di different initiatives of, of bringing in business to this company. As a head of product, I cared a lot about the business, of course. Especially the product-led part of this go-to-market meant that we had to understand like what was what was the actual impact of this. Like give, we were giving a lot of product, like like freemium models, we were giving a lot of product away. What was the impact? Then? And essentially that is what attribution is about, that you have certain tactics and you go to market. It can be like big things like giving your product away for free, or it could be small things like running an ad campaign. And you want to tie those tactics into behaviors that you can observe with your prospects or potential customers. And then you want to tie that again into the business results. So that could be generated pipeline or new business closed one. You want to create like a data model of that so that you can do analysis and figure out on the sort of strategic level, what's working? Is this whole product-led at all bringing in, in any business? Is it beneficial at all? Down to the very tactical level where you want to say, okay, does buying this keyword actually make sense? Does it impact any customer journeys other than becoming revenue? Think about a meeting where you have the head of product, the head of sales, and the head of marketing, and they are all discussing their contribution to revenue. And each of them names a number, when you add them up, 
it gives like 200% of the revenue that you made. Like that meeting was real and it happened. And I think it happens in a lot of companies. And at some point you need to figure out what is actually, say not the truth, but at least like something that's operational that can help you make good decisions. So we basically made the decision, hey, we need to figure out what is the impact of the different parts of the go-to-market. Like many um, tech companies, we had lots and lots of data. We had like a data warehouse, we had data describing everything in the business, but we were missing this sort of model that would glue all those data points together in a meaningful data model that we could use for analysis. And we went looking for a product that would fix it for us, and we couldn't really find one. So in that context, we built something ourselves so that we could answer the question, right, and start working in a more data-driven way in that company. Like many founding stories, we also just got frustrated that there wasn't a product for this, that we had to sit down and do all that tedious work of cleaning up the data, joining it, analyzing it, building models. We decided to basically take those experiences out and build a company around it. Let's switch to the MVP then. So tell me about the MVP. How long did it take to build and what sort of tools did you use to bring it to life? The experience from Trustpilot when we were solving it inside of that company was, you can say, the first, very first early prototype we had. What we would do is we would take the data from our tracking. So we used uh, segment.com for tracking our users on our website and, and in our applications. So we had a lot of tracking data. And then we would take commercial data from Salesforce, so describing the sales pipelines and the movements in there. And we would take some data from um, advertising platforms and we would put it all into a data warehouse and then we would process it into nice models. And that was essentially the tech stack we then took out and tried to build this like early prototype around. So we knew sort of how to build it because we'd done it once. And then we went out and found a couple of other companies that acknowledged that they had the same pain. And we actually went deliberately looking for customers that were using segment.com because then we knew that we'd be able to get the data. We didn't want initially to build a whole ETL tool and a tracking infrastructure before we could test something. So we had to go looking, we had to go look for someone who had enough data that we could build our prototype product or MVP with them. So we went looking for somebody who was using Segment. That way we could get the tracking data and they actually also had stored tracking data from like historical data and Segment has an ETL product. So that was a way to get the CRM data out and the advertising uh, platform data out into a BigQuery. And then we basically built, hand-built the models. That, that was the MVP. Now, building that and then slamming uh, a set of Google uh, Data Studio dashboards on top of it so that we could visualize the results. So you mentioned a couple of these in there, but I want to dive into them. Tell me about, tell me about some of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make in building that MVP. And it sounds like maybe choosing segment, not wanting to build you know, a lot of or all of the infrastructure there. But walk me through some of those decisions you had to make and how you coped with them. I think the way we went about this, I feel that we had much fewer constraints than we have had later on. Because as we sort of moved into building a more scalable product, we had to make a lot of painful decisions and cut off a lot of features because we couldn't build all of it. But because of the path we took where we sort of, we stuffed things into BigQuery and we built a fairly structured process of processing the data into the models we wanted, it was quite easy for us to modify that. And I would say that 
potentially created a situation where like it, there wasn't a lot of constraints on the MVP. I'm not sure that that was good, but at least I think sometimes it's nice to have constraints. That means you have to make lots of decisions early on. But we could actually build a lot of what looked like product because it was basically handmade uh, processing and data and model building inside of BigQuery and then a set of dashboards that we hand built the customer on top of it. Maybe too few decisions were forced on us there. But then when we sort of went from, say, having proven to ourselves, okay, there is a problem, there are some people that want to pay for this, and we said, okay, now we're going to go on and build, say, the first version of the product, then we had to make lots of decisions, right? Then we had to start cutting away features that didn't really make sense or that nobody was happy about or we just liked ourselves, right? Okay, so then, then from that point, you start moving towards that. Right. And you start progressing the product and maturing it. How did you go about that process? And I think to, to put that in a box, what I'm curious is, is how you built your roadmap and how you decided, OK, now this is the next most important thing to build. The, the way we thought about it was we have a long term vision for the company, which I would say stretches way beyond thinking about attribution, because for us, attribution in a way is it's just one analysis on top of this data. So our vision is to use this data set or this data platform for many different purposes in a company. And we call that revenue automation. And for us, attribution is just one of those. So I think for us, the main guidance for us and the North Star, that is our vision. So that is revenue automation, basically enabling companies to automate as much of generating revenue as possible. That's a, like a grand vision, right? So we use that for that. And then we will make tactical decisions, of course. We will try to see what can we then actually take to market? What can we get customers to buy and pay for that fits inside of that vision? So then let's switch to team, Lars. How did you go about building your team? And, and what I'm curious about is, is what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you. Yeah, so we, we started out, we were two co-founders that came out of Trustpilot. And then we were joined by like one of the companies we showed the product, like the early prototype to very, very early on was Stefan, who then became the third co-founder. And then between us, we had sort of a strong product knowledge or like, capability for building product. We had like strong tech and scaling, scaling tech. That's Ulle. And then we had Stefan, who has a very strong commercial, he's a very practical marketer, and in many ways sort of represents the core persona that we're selling to. So we were three guys founding the company and um, we raised some money so that we could hire some people. We, of course, were like, we were looking for things that we needed. We needed to iterate and go from this, like the very sort of duct tape uh, prototype that I described before. So we wanted to go from that to something that was slightly more scalable, not like scalable for 100 customers, but just at least scalable for like 15 or 10 customers or whatever we needed for the next milestone. So we went looking for uh, engineers, uh, designers, because we didn't have any design competency, like any design skills in the team. That, that was the first thing we needed, because we needed to sort of iterate the first prototype into more of a real product. And then we went looking for people who had entrepreneurial mindset. That was what we would look for. Somebody who would also ideally thrive in a chaotic environment because at that stage we got to be like six people and everybody's doing everything and you don't want someone who longs for like stable processes and lots of procedures you want people at that stage you just want people who love that there is very little structure and that you can 
make a, you can be part of making a lot of decisions. I think that's absolutely critical in the early days too. If you have somebody be able to wear multiple hats, be able to be flexible and to be able to learn quick. There's like something in that persona too that is just gritty, right? That can just get in there and and get it done. Also that like uh, a, a desire to impact I think is very important. Like you want to individually contribute to the success of the company. You want people who have that motivation. How did you approach scalability and did you build this to scale at least efficiently from day one or or have you been fighting this as you grow? I think we we have a philosophy of, of, of not building to scale too early. The first very first prototype, which is duct tape and basically custom built per customer, well that scales to five customers because then you just run run out of mental bandwidth to remember all the different modifications you did for different customers. And then you have to sort of go, okay, now we're gonna give everybody the same product. Because at that stage we'll say, okay, the next goal for us was 10 paying customers. That was like 12 months down the line. We wanted 10 paying customers. It's not like a massive amount of data we're gonna be processing. We can still do a lot of hand-holding per customer. It's a higher level of scalability, but it's not like real scalability the way you define it in a larger company. Then you've reached the next mile, so you've got your 10 customers, and now you're looking at, okay, how do we go from these 10 paying customers to maybe 200, 300, so 10xing or 20xing the customer base. Now you need a different level of scalability. You still don't need like full scalability because you're still just a fledgling little company. You can get away with lots of things, but then we built to the next level, right? As an example, for instance, one thing that that shows how we were thinking about this is when we started out, we got a lot of um, everything for us is built in Google Cloud. We got a ton of Google Cloud credits because you can get that as a startup. Well, you, you have a lot of credits, then you don't really care about the cost. I mean, no matter how lazy we were about scalability, we couldn't use all that money because it was just a lot of money. So no matter how badly all the SQL was written, it didn't really matter. Then we ran out of credits and all of a sudden it did matter. And then you need to sort of fix, a, like you need to fix scalability to a point where it goes from like, okay, I don't have to explain to my investors that we are actually spending 50% of our revenue on cloud bill. So we need to cut it down to a reasonable level, something that fits our stage. It doesn't necessarily have to be like you're at scale stage, but it has to fit our stage. We're a seed stage company, right? I love how you told that story where we had a bunch of credits and then we weren't worried about it, but then we ran out of credits and then we were worried about it. <laughs> and it's very similar. It's like we have um, in the way we build our models, the data models we build, there are certain things that are very standard per customer. And then there are certain things where every customer will always have a little tweak. They always have a different opinion, especially around how they set up their CRM and their sales pipeline. They will have called the stages different things. They will have named the pipeline different things. And when you get the data from the CRM system, it doesn't tell you about that structure. So we have to, for every customer, we can make some assumptions and most of the time it works. But for most of our paying customers, we have to go in and say, well, actually a new business opportunity is this pipeline, this stage, date field, is that date field. So they, there will be small customizations. And when you are onboarding one customer a month, it doesn't matter. But when you sort of approach onboarding 10 or 15 customers a month, then the data engineering team starts getting super annoyed that they're spending all their time doing that. 
and and that's not scalable, right? Because it was fine that they were doing it like one day a month, they were picking up these tasks and fixing them. But now all of a sudden they're getting um, disrupted in everything they do and they come to you and say, hey, we can't build anything meaningful because we all the time we're getting disrupted with these like demands from our CS team, like customer success team, they're coming to us with this, we have to build it and I can't build anything real product. And then you say, okay, well, let's make it more scalable because now this is not the right scale anymore. And then you make it scalable. You try to find ways to get customers to be able to self-service it, or at least the customer success team should be able to self-service it so that you don't have to bring it to an engineering team, right? So it's always about right scale. Well, as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? We love product. So I think we we love and I love the quality of product we've been able to build very fast and the amount of value that it can bring to customers. Um, I, I'm very proud of that. But I'm, I'm also very proud of the team that we assembled. So we have a very strong team and growing from these like three founders to we're 27 people now going from just having like a couple of product guys and a marketing guy and then all of a sudden you have a sales team that's performing and they have a process and like lots of things that we maybe did not know how to do. I'm very proud of that. I'm proud of having built something that if I go back two years and I ask myself like how do you do this? I would say I have no clue how to do it and now we're here and we have something that works. I'm very proud of that. So let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. One thing that I think of as a major mistake we made, I'm not sure that we could have done it differently. Like I described how we originally built the product around Segment, segment segment.com, because that made for us not having to build a lot of product to be able to actually sell and get customers on board. If we sold to customers that were already customers of segment.com, we would be able to just build the valuable part of the product, the unique part of our product, which is the data models. So we had a period where our ICP, like our ideal customer profile, when we set out, we thought, okay, it's gonna be B2B SaaS companies that are venture-backed. But at some point, we drifted away from that because we had inbound companies that were exciting. So we had companies coming to us saying, hey, we think your product is exciting, can we have it? But they didn't fit our ICP. They weren't segment customers and they were different. They were not B2B SaaS companies. And that meant we had to build a lot of product. We're happy about the product we built now, but it slowed down the process of learning. It slowed down the process of, of accelerating towards getting to a real go-to-market, etc. because we had to build much more product. It's something where I feel we didn't do as well as we could have done. If we had stayed more focused on our ICP, I think we could have moved faster. And, and I can see also now we have some parts of our product, like we did, because we ended up building some of these features from Segment ourselves, or we built some ETL product ourselves. We're starting to say, okay, we're actually gonna sunset this one integration for this CRM system because really nobody uses it. So there is, there's been some waste there because of that lack of focus. So, okay, what does the future look like for Dream Data, the product, and for your team? So for the product, we, we are we're moving in like the direction of the, the grand vision that I was talking about. So we are moving in the direction of revenue automation. So for us, that means sort of taking the product from being a, a data platform where we provide a set of uh, like analytics or insights on top of it. We wanna make some of those insights 
turn them directly into actions. So we want to take data and give it back to some of the systems that we got it from so that you can directly action the data. And that sort of for us is helping companies automate revenue more and more and more. So that is what's ahead of us. Um, from from a scaling perspective, we just, yeah, we're scaling the company, so we're gonna build out our sales team, um, build out our product team, so we are on a, a typical rapid scaling journey, that's the path we're on. So it's gonna be uh, from 27 people to probably tripling that in 12 to 18 months. So it's gonna be, from, from here on, it's gonna be a crazy journey. Well, let's switch to you, Lars. Who, who influences the way that you work? You know, name a person you look up to and why. One person that's been, it's not, I, I don't know him personally. I met him a couple of times. So one person I look up to a lot is Marty Kagan. So uh, from Silicon Valley Product Group, he has been very influential in the way that I think about, you can say building product, but also about building company. So he is uh, a strong advocate of sort of doing like being very commercially focused in, in the way that you think about a product and iterating. Um, yeah, I don't know. He's, he, I, he's been very influential for me. Then I would also just point out, like, I, I, I have a couple of co-founders that I look up to a lot. They have some skills that I don't have. So I look at that and I try to emulate them. I would say like being very like practical, um, being like high conviction. I'm maybe more of a, I'm a fundamentally more of a thinker and they have very high conviction. So I look up to that and I try to emulate that because conviction is also important because that helps you have direction and, and traction, right? Well, if you could go back to the beginning, what would you do differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I think the, the main place where I would consider doing it differently is what I, like the thing that I talked about, about focus. So I would have focused more early on. I would have basically stuck to that ICP that we had. And I would have, you know, painful, like, suffered through the pain of turning people away at the door and say, hey, you're not within our ICP. This is not going to be a success for you, uh, Mr. Customer. And then I would have focused very, very narrowly on those, um, on those ICP customers because that, that would have helped us have much more speed. That would have been the biggest uh, thing that I would have changed. Last question, Lars. So you're getting on a plane and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. Can't wait to show it off to you right there on the plane. What, what advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? Okay, if he has built the next big thing, I'll just congratulate him and say, <laughs> go out and crush it. <laughs> but if it's a bit more like us, where you sort of, you have built something that has a fit with a product, problem that exists in the world, I would advise around focus and I would like I would challenge him or her to think about whether he could or she could be more focused around this. Can you cut away something? Can you focus even more on solving like one problem very, very, very well for a very specific um, segment of, of companies or people? And I would have, I, that's the advice I would give. So like this early on have a lot of focus. And then I think the flip side of that is that you also need to understand that focusing here, that's about building your early product, but you need to know at the same time 
at least if you're going to build a huge company, you need to know that this problem either is or will become a very big problem for a lot of people later on. So you know that there's a big market out there, but don't confuse your sort of early ICP with the size of the market. And this probably then like when you're going to talk to investors, you will need to, some of them, you'll need to explain it to them or discuss it with them and say, yeah, I mean, we're focusing on this like very, very narrow segment, but it's actually a huge, huge market. And that's the, that's the advice I would give to that person, given that it was relevant. Maybe he was already great at it. And then I just say congratulations. <laughs> I think that's great advice. Well, Lars, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Dream Data. Hey, thanks, Noah. It was great being on the show. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.